So the topic of my message this morning is removing a believer from the church. And it's out of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at the whole chapter. We're going to go through it verse by verse. And uh, it might be the most difficult preach I've ever preached in my life. But anyway, when uh, the interesting thing is that when uh, God led me to preach on the book of 1 Corinthians, my first reaction was to say no, because I've read it a few times and I know that there are chapters like this in this book, and I knew that we were going to touch on some issues that are very countercultural and are going in a direction that the world isn't going in and the world doesn't accept. And uh, anyway, I, uh, I brought it to the elders and we prayed about it. And as a team, we all felt we should do the book. And uh, so we've said yes to God. And because I'm doing the majority of the preaching through this book, there are two paths that I could have chosen. Number one is to approach this book like a triple jumper and run at it with all my might and then just take a big hop, skip and a jump and land on all the safe passages, like 1 Corinthians chapter 13 on love, and just preach a whole heap of messages on that, and then just skip over all the difficult bits, and tell you that we've covered the book. Or we can follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, and we can go through as He leads, and as He stops, and He says, you need to focus on this, even though it's not a popular topic, even though it might be countercultural in the in the culture that we live in today. But uh, we're citizens of heaven, amen? We're not citizens uh, of earth. Well, we are, but we've got a heavenly citizenship as well, which supersedes our earthly citizenship. Now, one of the things that when we cover a passage like this is that we... The, the New Testament was written in the everyday language. So everyday Greek, it's called Koine Greek. It's not written in some kind of uh, university level language. It's written for the everyday man. And so we need to make sure that we don't get too philosophical about this, too theoretical and uh, too intellectual and go, well, you know, it's all symbolism and it doesn't really apply today. Um, this church in Corinth was a real church with real people and real sin issues. Just as today, we are a real church with real people and real sin issues. It hasn't changed. After 2,000 years, there's still sin going on. Amen? In the world and in the church. <laughs> We'd like to say there isn't, but we've got to live in reality. So we're going to have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you have your Bibles. We'll start at verse 1, and we'll just go through it verse by verse, and uh, we'll, we'll let the Lord do the talking. That's what I'm hoping. So let's just pray before we begin. Father, we thank you that uh, you are a, a wonderful God, that you're a holy God, that you're a loving God. We thank you for your word. And sometimes there are some difficult passages in Scripture that we struggle with because it's so counter-cultural to the world and the way we've been brought up that it really challenges us to the very core of our being and the core of our value system. 
But Lord, we want to be a people that sit under your word and not above your word. We don't want to twist your word to fit into our paradigm. We want to mold our lives to fit into your word. And so that's what we want to do today. We pray for revelation as we go through this passage. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would speak very clearly and, uh, yeah, open our eyes to see the truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul starts off, where's my water here? He starts off saying this. He says, I can hardly believe, are we going to put it up on the board? There we go. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. So Paul has heard a report. In fact, in some versions, it says it is universally reported. So it's widely known that someone in this church is living in sin with his stepmother. Falls into the category of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is a wide category of sins, not just one type of sexual sin. It covers many different kinds. And it covers all extramarital sexual sins. Sex outside of marriage is sin. Okay? Pretty clear in the Bible. We don't need to go into the Greek and what it means and all that. It's just anything outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sin in the sexual arena. In this instance, the form of sexual immorality is incest. A man is living in sin with his stepmother. So let me just read a few verses from Leviticus chapter 18. You don't have to turn there, just take down the reference. Leviticus chapter 18, I'm just going to read a couple of verses from that chapter. Verse 3, So do not act like the people in Egypt where you used to live, or like the people of Canaan where I'm taking you. You must not imitate their way of life. So God is telling his people, I'm moving you into Canaan, but don't live like them. Okay? Be separate. Be holy. Notice that for the people of Egypt, none of these things that are going to be listed are a problem. This is all acceptable in Egyptian culture. Okay? These things were very acceptable even in Canaan. And outside of the church today, some of these things that are listed here are acceptable to the world. Some of them are illegal, some of them aren't. Okay? God's standards are not the standards of this world. Verse 5, If you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. I am the Lord. So, The Lord is saying, if you obey me, you'll have life. You'll find life. And it's always the will of God to bring life into into us. Sin results in death. Obedience to God results in life. Okay? Verse 6. You must never have sexual relations with a close relative, for I am the Lord. Verse 7. Do not violate your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. You must not have sexual relations with her. Verse 8. Do not have sexual relations with any of your father's wives, for this would violate your father. So this is what's taking place in Corinth. 
Man is living in sin with his stepmother. Verse 22, do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man as with a woman is a detestable sin. Verse 24, do not defile yourself in any of these ways, for the people I am driving out before you have defiled themselves in all of these ways. Verse 29, whoever commits any of these detestable sins will be cut off from the community of Israel. Here's the thing. Scripture teaches us that God doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God back in the old covenant as he is in the new, te- in the new covenant. He's not loving now that Jesus has died on the cross. He's not full of grace now that Jesus has died. He was loving and full of grace back in the old covenant. Nothing has changed. Otherwise, he's not God. You're worshipping a different God if you think he's changed. You're not worshipping the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible never, ever changes because he's perfect. Once you're perfect, you change perfect by one millimeter and it's imperfect. That's it. Take a straight line. As soon as it's bent, it's no longer straight. And no matter what you do, you can never get that line back straight again. That's God. Okay? So God doesn't change. If a sin was detestable to God under the old covenant, it's still detestable to God under the new covenant. Why would we change that? God was love in the old covenant, and God is still love in the new covenant. And you might be thinking, well... If God is a God of love, why does he have such a problem with sin? Why is he so angry against sin? If he's all loving, why doesn't he just let it go and love people? Why has he got a major problem with sin? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Because in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, we get the answer. Romans 1 verse 18 says this. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people. Why? Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You see, this is the thing that God has with sin. Sin suppresses the truth of who God is. God makes man in his image to reflect who he is to all creation. But man sins. He murders, and in doing so, he's telling all creation, God is a murderer. We reflect God. And so when we sin, we're telling creation, this is who God is. Man lies, and in doing so, is reflecting God is a liar. When I lie, I'm saying to creation and everyone around me, the God that created me, I'm I'm made in his image. If I lie, God is a liar because I'm made in his image. This is why God's wrath is poured out against sin because it suppresses the truth about who he is. Man steals and in doing so reflects to creation that God is a thief. Man dishonors his mother and father and in doing so reflects 
that God made a mistake in giving that person their parents. That's, that's what happens. If I dishonor my mother and father, I'm telling everyone else, God made a mistake in putting me in their family. That's why he says, honor them. Show honor to them. God says marriage is between a man and a woman. Man says no. Marriage is between any gender they like. And in doing so reflects that God is a homosexual or a lesbian. Is that what we're reflecting to creation? Man commits all kinds of sexual immorality and in doing so reflects a God who is sexually immoral. Instead of a God who is jealous for his people, a God who is faithful, a God who is absolutely pure. In him is no sin. A holy God. Even the angels who surround God, they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not just, not loving, 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 not gracious, 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 gracious. Holy, holy, holy. Because one, one time is not enough. He's so holy, they have to say it three times. Nothing else, nothing else describes God in that, in that uh, triplicate. Like holy, holy, holy. Everywhere else in the Bible, whatever his characteristic is, is mentioned once. But his holiness is in three times. <clears throat> and so God's anger burns against sin because it suppresses the truth about who he is. He wants the world and all creation to know he is a good God. He is a holy God. He's a faithful God. He's a loving God. And so his anger burns against sin because it's suppressing the truth. How will people know that God is faithful when, when we're reflecting unfaithfulness? How will we reflect that God is truth when we lie? <laughs> and so that fierce anger burns against all mankind because all of us have sinned and all fallen short of the Lord, of his glory. And what happened is Jesus came and he stood between the wrath of God and you. And that full extent of the wrath of God hit Jesus. And he took the full brunt of everything that was supposed to go on us. Everything. And when you look at him on the cross, it says in Isaiah that he wasn't even recognizable as a human. That's the anger, the wrath of God poured out on a person. And that was meant for each one of us. But Jesus stood in the way and he shielded us from that, from that wrath. He took it all. For you and I. His only son. Jesus sacrificed his life for us. So that you and I could be saved from the wrath of God. I hope you're seeing the bigger picture here. <laughs> because if you only see God as a loving God. You will have such a warped sense of who God is. That most of the Bible will make no sense to you. You'll go well. How can it say that it pleased the Lord to crush his son severely. 
How do you work that out if God is all loving? How could he do that to his only son? To crush Jesus severely. And it pleased him. You can't, you can't marry the two if you only see God as loving. God is loving. He's also good. He's also merciful. He's also just. It says in the Bible, the guilty will not go unpunished. He's also jealous. He won't allow any of us to have any other God next to him. Not instead of him. If he's on the mantelpiece, nothing else can be on the mantelpiece. You can't say, well, I worship God, but I also do this. He says, you shall have no other gods beside me, next, next to me. Even if they're the tiniest little god, they're not allowed. Nothing but him. He wants exclusive attention in your life. Exclusive worship. He's jealous. He's also a savior. And he's also a judge. He's also holy. He's also a God of wrath against all wickedness and sinfulness. And so getting back to Corinthians, this man in the church in Corinth is living in sin with his stepmother. And Paul says he can hardly believe the report he's hearing. He's absolutely appalled. Verse 2. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. This, man is, this man's sin is shocking to Paul, but what's equally as shocking is the reaction of the church. He's, he's flabbergasted that this believer is living like he is, and then he's equally as flabbergasted the church are doing nothing about it. Paul says, you knew this was happening, but instead of feeling sorrow and shame, you're proud. You see, if, if a church ignores issues of sexual immorality or other issues that will come up in this scripture, the danger is, is that the church falls into the sin of pride. And pride is the original sin committed by Satan in heaven. This church is proud of the way they allow sin to take place in their midst. It's almost as if they're saying, look at how loving and accepting we are. We accept this terrible lifestyle. We accept him. Look at how progressive we are. Their danger is that they've forgotten that God is holy. <laughs> And he calls his people to be holy. Holy means separated from what is common to worship God, which is something sacred. That's what God has called us to do, to be separate and to be sacred. <laughs> Not common. We've got to reach people in the world, but we don't do it by becoming, by embracing their lifestyle. We do it through separation, holiness, shining a light so that the world can see, whoa, what's that light over there? We're in darkness. There's light. There's truth. There's lies on this side. There's truth on that side. That's what it means to be holy. 
to be separated to worship God. And instead of humbling themselves and obeying God, they puffed up in pride. Their, what's happened is their thinking is now above Scripture. They're like, look at us. We're so enlightened, we've gone beyond the Bible. We're in a place now where we've been there, done that, bought the T-shirt, now we're on to greater things. We've got, a, we've got an elevated knowledge above Scripture even. We're more loving than God. We're more accepting than God. God's saying kick the person out, but look at us. We love the person. <laughs> and they are affirming a sinful lifestyle that God calls detestable. In fact, the moral standards of this church have dropped even below the moral standards of the world. Because Paul said in verse 1, he said this is taking place that even pagans don't do. Your standards are so low, you've become so liberal, you've lowered your standards below even that of the world around you. The church is supposed to be a shining light in the dark, not darker than the dark. (laughs) Even today, when churches embrace sinful lifestyles of this nature, they become blinded with pride, and instead of mourning and crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They celebrate and tolerate sin that God says will defile them. And I believe this grieves the Holy Spirit. Remember, he's called the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Just think about that. He's in you and in me. The Holy Spirit. The Spirit that is separated. The Spirit that is sacred. Not common. (laughs) Verse 3, continuing in 1 Corinthians. Even though I'm not with you in person, I'm with you in the Spirit. And as though I were there, I've already passed judgment on this man. Verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus. You must call a meeting of the church, and I will be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. Verse 5. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and that he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. Paul says when you have a case like this, this is what should be done. The person who's living in sexual immorality should be thrown out of the church. Why? So that they can be saved. It's always redemptive. It's always with the idea of restoring a person. It's never punishment. God didn't sit down one day and just said, well, I hate the color purple and I love the color blue. So anyone who likes purple is sinning and anyone who likes blue is righteous. He didn't do that. Whatever is suppressing the truth about him, he hates. And whatever is revealing the truth about him, he loves. And he's saying, how can you let someone live in the midst of you who's suppressing the truth about who God is? And he says that the goal of removing someone who's living a lifestyle of sexual immorality is that by removing them from the fellowship of believers, it will bring them to their senses and result in their salvation. It's like the prodigal son. So the prodigal son went to his father, got his inheritance, and then he just lived it up in wild living. 
But he never came to his repentance, even when his money ran out. He only came to repentance when there was a famine. And in the middle of the famine, he couldn't have a job. He, he lost everything. And he was so hungry, he wanted to eat what the pigs were eating. And then he came to his senses. And in a similar way, when someone is removed from the church, it creates a spiritual famine in their life, and it's the only way they can be brought to repentance. That's the goal. It's not punishment. It's for restoration. So Paul says, throw this person out. But it can only be in the context of in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It can't be done by any human decision. It's got to be Jesus saying that person needs to be removed. And it's got to be the power of Jesus that removes them. Because you and I can't remove anybody from the body of Christ. Unless you think you can. <laughs> you can't. You, you don't have, you pretty much don't even have a milligram of, of power to do that. But let's just say you did have enough power, you would need infinite power to remove someone from the church. And that only Jesus has. Only he has the authority and the power to remove someone from the church. Hmm. Hectic stuff. No human, no angel even, has the power or the authority to throw a believer out of church. Satan doesn't even have the power to do it. Okay, that should give us security. It's only when God speaks to the leaders of the church and says, okay, that person needs to be removed, can it be done? And then Paul says, call the church and, and, and remove the person. Remembering that these leaders have to give an account for the way they led. <laughs> so one day we have to stand before God and give an account for our leadership of the church. And so if we've kicked anybody out, that God said, well, why did you kick that person out? You're going to be held responsible for that. It should be done with reverence and fear and trembling and a lot of prayer and a lot of fasting. <laughs> Added to the throwing out of the church is the fact that the person will be handed over to Satan for the destruction of his or her sinful nature. What does that mean? Those that are in the church enjoy spiritual covering and protection. So the removal of someone from a church, there might be sorrow and loss at the physical removal, but what's worse is the spiritual removal, the spiritual removal of the covering of the church. That is far more important than just the fact that someone can't come on a Sunday and have a cup of tea or coffee with you <laughs> and sing some songs and listen to a message. That removal is a spiritual thing and it is far more significant than what we realize. One of the roles of an elder is to oversee the church. Another role is to shepherd. Now that role of shepherding involves protecting the sheep. It's not just about taking the sheep to somewhere where there's good food and feeding them well, but it's also about protecting the flock so that when wolves come, the elders step in and protect that's part of the role of an elder. Traditionally, the elders sat at the gates of the cities and they watched over who entered and who left the city. They were the protection from any shady characters that try to come in to a city. 
and cause problems. They just go up to the person and say, hang on a minute, aren't you the guy that isn't allowed back in this city? Eh? You're not welcome here. Pack your bags and leave. And over the years, there have been a few people that even our elders have had to go up to and have a word with. People that we have felt are here to do harm to this church. Some wanting to make money from our members. Come here to sell things. Come here for a platform. Wanting to sue the church. We've had people wanting to do that. We've had people coming in wanting to bring false doctrines. We've had other people that are wanting just to come in and fight with members in the church. We had a person come in that literally was just came here to argue with a family member or a, I forget who it was, but it was just he was just coming out to argue. And so we've had to go over to these people and say, listen, you're not welcome here. Don't step foot in the door again. And not a single one have returned. That's part of the protection and covering that a local church provides. And not only that, but every member of this church is prayed over by name, by the elders. And this is one of the biggest forms of covering and protection and blessing. When somebody leaves the church or when someone is removed, the elders no longer carry the burden to pray for them by name because they're no longer our sheep. And that's huge. For me, this is the biggest thing. And many people don't realize this. But once they've left, they fall into the category of general prayer. So while we're praying over Wyndham or Melbourne or Australia, and we're praying, God, bring revival, God, bless this nation, Lord, open up job opportunities and whatever, they receive some of that. But you who are part of this church are prayed for by name. And that is significant. We are bringing you before the Lord personally, which is huge. (laughs) It might have been the first time you've ever realized that before. But being a part of a local church, there is an incredible umbrella of protection, covering, and blessing over your life. Just because you're part of a church. And if God ever calls you to leave or go to another city, the first thing I would do if I were you is find a church. Don't put that last on your list. Get under the covering, the blessing and protection of God first before you even look for a job, before you look for a house, before you do anything, get into a church. Because the devil is prowling around looking for someone that he can destroy. And he doesn't sleep at night. (laughs) Okay? Let's continue. In this church in Corinth, I believe that this church has fallen captive to one of the most powerful tactics that the devil has, and that is deception. See, the dangerous thing about deception is that you don't know when you're deceived. That's why it's so dangerous. Verse 6, Paul says this. He says, your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize? What's that? Deception. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Nah, that's not going to happen. You're deceived if you don't think that. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus' disciples asked Jesus, how will they know 
when Jesus is about to return? What are the signs going to be when you're going to come back? And Jesus didn't just start off and say, well, these are the signs, bang, bang, bang. The first thing he says is this, watch out that no one deceives you. Before he even gives a sign, forget about that, watch out you don't get deceived. And then four more times in that chapter, Jesus mentioned false prophets are going to come and deceive you. False messiahs are going to come and deceive you. False prophets and false messiahs are going to come and deceive you. Even the elect, if possible. Deception is going to be one of the biggest challenges that the church faces the closer it gets to the return of Jesus. I'm telling you, forget about anything else. Deception is going to be our biggest thing that we are going to, we're going to fight against. Paul says, don't you realize, can't you see what's going on here? In fact, the phrase, don't you realize, is mentioned 12 times in the book of 1 Corinthians. 12 times. Paul says, don't you realize, don't you realize, don't you realize. I think it's safe to say this church is struggling with deception. (laughs) See, the devil's tactic is to deceive the church so that we disobey God and we live ineffective lives. And the thing is, we don't know when we're deceived. Imagine a person with the word deceived written on their forehead. How will they ever know that they're deceived? Someone comes up to them and says, I say, oh, I don't believe you. How can I trust you? The only way they can realize that they're deceived is by looking in the mirror of God's word. Ah. Oh, What's that on my forehead? When you look at the Word of God and you see your life doesn't line up with Scripture, you're deceived. And then you go, oh, God's not happy with the way I'm living. Something needs to change. I need to repent. I need to turn back to God. I need to receive grace and power to live according to the way God wants. And then you walk into freedom and truth. That's the only remedy for deception. Look in the mirror, (laughs) and then you will know. Paul says that there are certain sins that will spread like yeast through the whole congregation if they are not dealt with, and sexual immorality is one. Later on in verse 11, he expands this list to those whose lifestyles are greedy, idolatrous, abusive, those who are drunkards, those who cheat people. Now, these are not specific things. They are categories of lifestyles. See, we, the way we work law at the moment is unless the law specifically says you are not allowed to put your left foot in front of your right foot, then we can, you know, we, we walk like that and we, we, there's a loophole in the law. But back then, if it said, well, if you dig a hole and your neighbor's ox falls into it and... You dug a hole and your neighbor's sheep fell into it. You broke that law because they took it as this is a general law covering similar scenarios. Whereas today we go, no, 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 no. The law says ox and it was a sheep. So I'm not doing it. I haven't broken the law. That's how we work today. That's not how God works in the Bible. It's not saying, oh, yeah, but which sexual immorality is it? Because there's many different types. 
It's if, if there's a lifestyle of sexual immorality and unrepentant sin, and if God comes to the leaders and says, that person there is unrepentant, what they are doing is going to defile the church, remove them, then what do we do? We have to remove them. That's what the Bible teaches. I can share from my own personal testimony. That when, I got, when I got saved, right in the beginning, I didn't hang around with the church. I continued to hang around with my unsaved friends who were drunkards. And what happened to me? I ended up drinking more, clubbing more, all of that as a believer because I got sucked into their lifestyle of sin. But praise God that I came to my senses and it's all the grace of God. It's not something I even did. And removed myself from those friendship circles. I literally lost about 70 friends overnight. Gone. To this day. <laughs> but God added so many more. You see, later on in the letter of, of Corinthians, in chapter 15, verse 33, Paul says, bad company corrupts good character. If we think we can hang around people with, with corrupted character and be okay, the, God says to you, bad company will corrupt your character. Not might, it will. So some friendships need to be ended. Gee, how can I preach that? It's biblical. <laughs> It is. Right, let's get back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast by removing the wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let's celebrate the festival, not with the bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. So I wish I had time to preach on the Passover, but there's no ways. That's a whole message on its own. So let me just finish up with the last few verses. Verse 9. When I wrote, and what Paul's doing here is he's clearing up a misunderstanding. He says in verse 9, When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or who are greedy or who cheat people or who worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer and yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. Verse 12, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. But as scripture says, you must remove the evil person from among you. You see, this church thought that they should avoid contact with anyone who's sexually immoral. Paul says no. The church has got to reach out to unbelievers in the hope that they will be saved from the wrath of God and repent of their sins and change their life. The person you have to avoid is someone who calls himself a believer and yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols 
or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats. Don't even eat with such people. And we've seen this in the church. We've seen guys come in and unfortunately we've seen many, many people, this is years ago, lose all their superannuation, all their savings because a guy came in claiming to be a believer who was a financial advisor and even some of the leaders invested in this guy's schemes. He took the lot of them and he walked away with millions and now today there are people that are bankrupt in the church because this guy was a cheat. He called himself a believer and a person like that needs to be removed from the church. That's what scripture says. So it's actually incorrect to say, well, there's only two categories of people that you can remove from the church. Someone who's sexually immoral and someone who's divisive. This scripture here is saying, if you've got someone who's a swindler, remove them. Why? Because they will affect everyone in this church. If you've got someone who's abusive, remove them. (laughs) Otherwise, they'll start abusing people in the church. We don't want that. So someone who calls himself a believer. In other words, the pros oh sorry. He says, don't even eat with such people. What does that mean? In other words, it means that the process of removing someone from the church will be nullified if you try and reach out to them as a friend. Oh, I'm so sorry you got removed, but we're still going to maintain our friendship. I'll still catch up with you for coffee. You've nullified the whole point of removing and you've actually stepped in the way of the process that God is putting in place. The whole point is that the person experiences a famine. Why? So that they'll be saved. Because it's no good remaining friends with someone who is going to be continually living a lifestyle of sexual sin and never repenting. But hey... I want to be loving and I want to be a friend and I want to let them know Jesus loves them. Jesus wants to save them, ultimately. (laughs) And there is a process that needs to take place. Remember, the father never ran after the prodigal son. He didn't run after him. He waited at home. That's a very, very important lesson for us to learn as a church. No one should be running after someone who's been removed. You've got to let the Lord do the work and bring the person to repentance and they will repent and turn and come back to their father's house. The great news about this passage in second, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11. Because of this process, the person that was removed in chapter 5 of, of 1 Corinthians was restored into the church, into Corinthians. Paul says this, I'm not overstating it when I say, the man who caused me all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and that was his punishment enough. Now, however, it's time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. It's not an easy thing when someone is removed from the church. It's... It's not easy. But Paul is saying this person's going to be overcome with discouragement because he is repentant. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote to you as I did to test you 
and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit, so that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. You see, this person has been handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, but Satan doesn't just want to do that. He wants to destroy more than just that. And so Paul's saying we're not unaware of the devil's schemes here. That guy's repented. He needs to be restored. Otherwise, he will be totally destroyed. The goal in all of this is for the restoration of a believer. Always. That is the goal. 